Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. To the residents and tourists of Venice, Italy's historic city of canals, November the 12th, 2019, probably felt like any other autumn day. There was a storm heading towards the city, though. In St Mark's Square, the lowest-lying part of the city, the authorities had installed temporary raised walkways just in case of flooding in the coming days. It turned out to be a wise precaution. That night... Venice experienced one of its worst ever floods. Shops, restaurants and ground floor apartments throughout the city were destroyed. A newsagent's kiosk floated away as the waters rose. It was found in the bottom of the canal a few weeks later. Two people even died. The city's mayor reckoned that the flood in 2019 resulted in around a billion euros of damage. Venice isn't the only city that's sinking. Rising sea levels around the world, some of it due to climate change, are putting many population centres at risk. Cities are therefore increasingly looking for ways to adapt. As the planet continues to warm, how can urban areas survive the rising waters? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. Today, we're going on a trip to Venice to find out whether that city could be a proving ground for how cities around the world could be saved from sinking. We'll also see why the residents of the Indonesian capital, Jakarta, think it might be better not to fight the water and to simply start their city again somewhere else. Jakarta is built on extremely soft soils, basically a mixture of sand, clay and water. And it's very unstable and if you put some pressure on it, it will compact. I'm on a vaporetto, which means water bus in Venice. Benjamin Sutherland reports on science and technology for The Economist, and he's based in Italy. And we've just passed under one low bridge, and we're coming up on another. Uh, looks like we've got a little bit more clearance on this one. The previous one was pretty tight. The city has been slowly sinking. Sea levels have been rising, and the number of tides that have been washing into the city has risen dramatically. A number of the city's bridges have been taken apart and rebuilt higher. 
I wanted to visit Venice because, uh, first of all, it's an iconic city. And uh, I think that however Venice manages or fails to deal with the rising seawaters is going to be precedent setting. There's a lot of uh, attention on the city. Probably no city in the world is as visited as Venice on a per capita basis. Venice is a remarkable city. It's Europe's only city that made it through the Middle Ages without a defensive wall, for starters. Venice sits in a lagoon at the northern tip of the Adriatic Sea. Water makes its way into the lagoon through three inlets, and the lagoon is large. There's a sadly ironic element to Venice's plight. The city is under siege from rising waters, but it's water itself that has sustained the city for centuries. It gave rise to Venice's outsized maritime power, and so it's ironic that it's water itself now that is threatening the city's survival. One of the problems is that Venice and its lagoon in the surrounding area is mostly made up of sediments that have been brought down from the Alps over the geological eras and uh, deposited these layers. In fact, one of the scientists, a hydraulic engineer with whom I spoke, described it as a panettone, which is a spongy Italian Christmas cake. And so you have these layers that compact over time. The Venetians had to drive huge wood pylons deep down into the muck in order to create a solid enough foundation to build on top of it. So that's already less stable than, say, New York, which is built directly on, on deep bedrock. Currently, the rate of sinking is about one or two millimeters a year. When you start adding up the decades, it really does matter. In the 2010s, Venice flooded about twice as often as it did in the 1990s. So these changes are taking place within everybody's lifetime. And people can see just how fast this is happening. I'm in St. Mark's Square, which is undoubtedly ground zero for tourism in Venice. It also happens to be the part of the city that is the lowest. So this part of the city floods even with a high tide of just about 80 centimeters, whereas many other parts of the city need a high tide of more than a meter or so to, to flood. This has caused particular problems for the masterpiece of the Basilica San Marco, an old Byzantine structure, which uh, is a building that has had a lot of problems with flooding. You have a lot of art treasures, architectural treasures that are suffering various levels of corrosion from the salts and other materials and contaminants that you've got in the water. And so it's not a coincidence that Venice is also considered one of Italy's premier centers for art restoration. You've got armies of people paid to restore buildings and statues and, and other parts of the city because you have this relentless attack from uh, the corrosive seawater. I'm going to uh, meet with the chief architect of the Basilica San Marco to understand more about a system of uh, glass barriers in order to protect the structure from, from high tides. 
Buongiorno. I spent some time with uh, Mario Piana, who's the architect of St. Mark's Basilica. In November, a glass retaining wall, a little higher than a meter around the building, was completed. And that has worked well, but no one feels that that kind of a solution would be practical for large areas of the city. And it's also a lot more expensive than you might think, because it's not just a matter of building a wall to keep out the floodwaters, because the floodwaters come in through the toilets and the piping system. And so they had to set up special valve systems, which is expensive to block the water from bubbling up from inside. It's not just build a barrier around a building. Mario, grazie. Niente. Grande piacere, molto informativo. Se ho un'altra domanda, la mando un'email. The flooding in Venice hurts morale. It's cut into real estate values, and the city has, over time, it has slowly depopulated. There used to be about 200,000 people who lived full-time in Venice. Now the figure is about 50,000. You have enough tourists coming in to keep the streets full, but it does tell you something that the locals have been voting with their feet for decades. I'm on a Vaporetto water bus in Venice. This is the city's only form of public transportation. And I'm on my way to visit an engineering marvel. There's an enormous mechanical beast lying across the three inlets to the Venetian Lagoon. And it consists of 78 floodgates, each the size of a multi-unit building, two meters thick. And when a high tide is forecast, compressed air is, is forced into these. That pushes the water out. It rises up to nearly vertical position and blocks the entrance to the lagoon for the number of hours needed holds back the tide, keeps the flooding out of the city. Now, normally during high tide in Venice, I can have water up to my knees, but take a look around. St. Mark's Square is dry, and it's all thanks to a flood prevention system, one that cost six and a half billion euros, and it's proving successful. It's far from perfect, but it could be this city's best chance at survival. The name of the system is the Experimental Electromechanical Module the Italian acronym of which is Mose, which works out to Moses in a clever reference to the biblical figure who parted the Red Sea. It was used 36 times in 2022. I'm on a motorboat taxi and we're heading to this island that was built to facilitate this uh, floodgate system. Okay, we're in uh, a staircase and we're descending about 60 meters. At this point, we're well underneath sea level. And we're going down to not quite an operations room, but a kind of a maintenance corridor for servicing the equipment in these large hollow floodgates that filled with compressed air to get them to rise to the surface and seal off the three inlets to the Venetian lagoon. 
quella valvola permette all'aria da fuori di entrare in questa galleria ma se io non ho un uomo che mi apre quella valvola io posso accendere i compressori ma non, matare, ce non ce la fa deve essere fisicamente presente deve essere una volontà fisica so e one of the things that, that's being explained right now is that this was designed essentially to be hacker proof you can't just press a button or a series of buttons in here or even in a remote operations room and open the floodgates you have to have experts here who are actually manually doing things opening valves and and that was specifically to prevent some sort of hacker attack that might try and open the gates the decision to build mose was taken in 2003 the idea was that once built the whole system would last for a century i was shocked when i was told by the director of the Mose system that the thinking now is that they're hoping it'll manage to last for half as long. One of the design constraints was to build something that would not be visually imposing, that would not ruin the picturesque views of the lagoon and the city. In fact, uh, Ramesh Reddy is the director of the uh, engineering consortium that built and operates the system and and he told me that uh, he had a meeting with a former mayor of New York who wanted information about what Venice was building and he was uh, bragging to the mayor saying essentially that we've built something that's unobtrusive <laughs> E io voglio che la gente veda quello che ho fatto, ma frega mica niente a me che non si veda, no? And the former mayor laughed and said, but if I'm going to build something for New York, I want people to see it. So it's kind of a, a nice little contrast between the, the loud and proud culture ethos in New York and Venice's approach, which was to build something discreet that would have the minimal visual impact on the site. But there are a lot of downsides, a lot of problems with this. First of all, you've got opposition from commercial fishermen and commercial shipping. Keep in mind that if you stall some of these big ships bringing cargo into the port, that can cost many thousands of dollars for these delays for each of these ships. The operations cost is expensive too. Last year, the first year in which it was fully operated after a testing phase, it cost at least 70 million euros to keep operating. Then you have environmental issues. Pretty much all of Venice's sewage runs raw directly into the lagoon. And sometimes you do even see bits of uh, toilet paper floating in the canals. So I spoke with uh, Luigi Tozzi, a geologist with Italy's National Research Council. Quindi eh, rischiamo di trovarci in una prima una vasca da bagno e poi in una fogna. Eh, perché diciamo, quindi ci deve essere questo scambio. And he said, you know, if you have to use the floodgates so frequently because of rising sea levels, eventually you get a bathtub and that becomes a sewer. The lagoon needs this continual washing in and out of high tides in order to keep the water decent, you've got marine life obviously in the lagoon, and that's the reason why they only put the system in operation when tides are going to reach at least 110 centimeters. 
We'll hear more from Ben in Venice shortly. Of course, Venice is far from the only place that's sinking. Alize Jean-Baptiste is a podcast producer for The Economist. She travelled to Jakarta to learn how rapid urbanisation and climate change are combining to cause a huge headache for the city's residents. Jakarta, Indonesia's capital, is a city up to its neck in problems. It's overcrowded, with 30 million people residing in it. It's plagued by rising inequality. It's frequently paralyzed by traffic jams, and the air quality is quite poor. But perhaps most importantly, Jakarta is sinking. And it's sinking fast, up to 25 centimeters a year in parts of northern Jakarta. There, the water is omnipresent. The only thing separating residents from being flooded by the ocean is a 110-kilometer seawall built in 2002. We, yeah, we are on the location of the wall, wall on, in North Jakarta. I was taken to see this wall by Edvin Aldrian, a professor and climate change researcher. But the thinking in Jakarta is very clear, especially in the North Jakarta. Edvin and a group of little girls who were playing on top of the wall gave me a hand so I could see beyond the structure. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. A few meters past the wall were the ruins of what used to be the Wall Aduna Mosque. All that's left of it now, though, is basically four graffitied walls poking out of the water. Everything else is submerged. It was quite surreal to think that some years ago, this would have been on solid ground. Edvin told me there used to be other buildings around the mosque. They were reclaimed by the sea. This seawall that protects residents of North Jakarta is just a temporary fix. And it's less than perfect. It failed Jakartans in 2007 when the city experienced its most severe flooding in recent history. Thousands of people were displaced and dozens died. And without drastic change, more of Jakarta will end up like the Waladuna Mosque, underwater. Okay, so, um, to understand why Jakarta is sinking so fast, I went to speak with Victor Koonen of Vitevinen Boss, a Dutch civil engineering consultancy firm. Victor is a flood management expert, and he has been heading large-scale flood mitigation projects in the city for the past decade. Uh, Jakarta is built on extremely soft soils, basically a mixture of sand, clay and water. And it's very unstable, and if you put some pressure on it, it will compact. This pressure Victor is talking about comes in part from Jakarta's rapid urbanization. The city has been building skyscrapers, hotels, shopping malls, and new luxury apartment blocks at a swift pace. So the geology is not uh, favorable. Then if you build anything on top of it, it will push out the water, which means that it will compact. And that pushing out the water can be accelerated if you extract water. And that is exactly what is happening. So industries, households are extracting water, which basically accelerates the removal of water. And yeah, that's what's causing the sinking of the land. Most households have no choice but to extract their own water, since the city doesn't supply its residents with it. 
One of the most obvious solutions to Jakarta's land subsidence would be to provide all residents and businesses with good quality water, so they no longer have to extract it themselves. The city's administration is working on it, but it's easier said than done. So we expect that for another 10 to 15 years, uh, extraction of groundwater will still occur. But parts of Jakarta don't have 10 to 15 years. The seawall has been failing frequently. Sea levels are rising and extreme weather events are increasing. This means more needs to be done to save Jakarta. One plan is to build a new seawall. Victor is the project manager behind this idea. So uh, currently uh, the coastline of Jakarta is 110 kilometers of seawall. And that needs to be raised every five to ten years because of the sinking of the land. Why don't we replace this 110 kilometer seawall by a 25 kilometer offshore seawall? If you build it offshore, you will not hit communities. You can build whatever you want. When this project first became public in 2013-2014, there were talks of reclaiming land that could be used to house new government buildings and luxury shops. A whole new city, even. It was meant to be shaped like a Garuda. That's a bird-like mythical creature, which is part of the state's emblem. Detractors said it would be built for the rich, not ordinary Jakartans. Then a new governor was elected. And the project stalled. Now, 10 years have passed, and the offshore seawall is nowhere to be seen. Because Jakarta's problems won't be overcome quickly, that's led some people to consider more radical solutions. That's Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, announcing the location of a new capital back in 2019. This new city will be a thousand kilometers away from Jakarta in East Kalimantan province, on the island of Borneo. It will be called New Santara, which means archipelago in Old Javanese. And Jokowi's plans for it are incredibly ambitious. It's meant to be a modern, green, technologically advanced utopia. It's designed to integrate environmental and urban planning principles. In other words, it's essentially everything Jakarta isn't. There are concerns that the construction of a new city of this scale will have a heavy environmental cost on Borneo, an island known for its rich biodiversity. But for now, the project is well underway. New Centaur's inauguration is scheduled for August 2024. But the new capital is not designed to accommodate the 30 million people who currently reside in and around Jakarta. So the vast majority of Jakartans will remain in a sinking city. And like in this narrative that we're going to move and everything's going to become better, when we look at the plans for the new capital, currently the plan is only designed to house 3% of Jakarta's population, which around 1.5 million people. And so the question then is, what about the other 29 million people who live in Jakarta? Nasheen Mahtani was born and raised in Jakarta. She spent the last few years building software to help people prepare for floods. I'm currently the director of Yayasan Pata Benchana, which stands for Disaster Map Foundation, as well as the co-founder of the Climate Emergency Software Alliance. And we are working on building open source softwares for climate adaptation. Nasheen's map has 150 million users in Indonesia. 
it's so successful that they're now expanding in Southeast Asia and beyond. We map disasters in real time uh, using crowdsourced reports from social media as well as government emergency validations. And so the premise is that with climate change, of course, the frequency and intensity of weather we're experiencing is completely changing. So even though like cities like Jakarta have lived with flooding for centuries, the way flooding is happening now is completely changing. It's becoming really erratic. These are the types of projects that will keep people alive and help them manage a world with very frequent extreme weather events. Jakarta, if it is to stay dry, will need many more initiatives like hers. All our team are experiencing these disasters and we see that they're going to continue. So we can't wait for something to come and save us. We sort of have to design ways to try and save ourselves. And that's not exclusive to us. Like if we look at the majority of residents who are living in this situation, people find ways to adapt and people actually find really creative ways. While the Indonesian government has decided to create an entirely new capital city, researchers in Venice are looking for technological ways beyond the Mose floodgates to adapt their historic city. Let's pick up with our correspondent, Ben Sutherland. People are starting to try and figure out what can be done next. Now, I spoke with Luigi Tozzi about one of the, the big ideas which has been kicked around for a while, which is trying to actually raise the entire city by a certain amount by, by drilling water wells and injecting seawater at high pressure deep underneath Venice. High enough pressure to essentially lift the geological layers over perhaps about a decade of pumping by 25 centimeters, perhaps maybe even a little bit more. This isn't the first time a project like this has been suggested or even undertaken. There's an area near Long Beach, California that sank notably many decades ago. When they uh, discovered oil, uh, it's like a gold rush. After hydrocarbons were pumped out of the area. Everybody had, had this dream of, of making money in, in Long Beach. Water was pumped back into these reservoirs. And sure enough, that did meaningfully lift the area and, and reduce flooding. You also have across northern Italy, a good half dozen sites where gas has been pumped underground just for storage. And uh, scientists did measurements, and sure enough, the land rose by not insignificant amounts. One of the mind-boggling things here is you wonder how in the world water could somehow lift the incredible weight. I spoke with an expert hydraulic engineer at Padua University near Venice, Massimiliano Ferronato. The way to think of it is, of course, water does not have muscle in and of itself, but there's a mechanical process known as poroelasticity. And 
if uh, the substrates are essentially loose enough for the water to get in there, it increases the amount of pressure in these pores. And over time and enough of an area, that pressure builds up and actually does have the strength to lift up unbelievably heavy amounts of geological material. The costs would probably be, be manageable. They, they feel that you could build the entire system and put it into place at a cost of perhaps 2% of the construction cost of the Mose system. And then maintaining the system would probably cost about 5% of the operating costs of the annual operating cost of the Mose system. So the, the cost would not be out of reach. What's clear from everything we've heard so far is that adaptation is unavoidable. You can read more of Ben's reporting from Venice on The Economist's website or app. In this week's edition of The Economist, you can also read a piece from my colleagues about China's battle with sea level rise. Some of the most important cities for the world's supply chains are on China's coast. As a result, the locals' wealth there has increased a hundredfold, and immigrants from poorer inland areas have flocked to the cities by the sea. But sea levels are rising faster than the global average there. We take a look at what China's leaders want to do about it. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. You can get your first month for free by signing up at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. Coming up, how adaptation and migration play into the global conversations around climate change. What are the political and economic considerations that need to be taken into account when you're thinking about saving cities? Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, we're looking at the ways cities will need to adapt as sea levels rise. The examples we've looked at range from highly technological solutions in Venice to the planned relocation and almost a forced retreat of the capital city of Indonesia. To put all of this into context, I'm joined by Katrine Brahek, The Economist's environment editor. Hi, Katrine. Hello, Alok. So, Katrine, we've been talking about the impact of sea level rise throughout today's show. As the world warms up, why are sea levels rising? Sea levels are rising for a few different reasons. More water in the oceans as water runs off, so you know, melting ice on the land running off into the oceans is rising sea levels. Another one that doesn't always get mentioned is the fact that actually a hotter ocean is a more expansive ocean. Literally, the water expands, and so it takes up more space, and therefore it creeps up the coastlines. And then you've also got 
in some places. Sea level rise is in fact compounded by sinking land mass, and so the net result is even greater sea level rise. Sea levels are currently rising at a rate of just short of four millimeters a year. That doesn't seem like much. In part, that's because it is an average. So different places, it'll be rising faster in some places and slower in other places. And also, importantly, what you get is natural variability on top of that. So El Nino and La Nina cycles and then storm surges will add on to that. So it's a dynamic system. And I think the projections on the U.S. coastline are depending on location that sea levels will rise by between 10 and 35 centimetres. So we're going towards a foot by 2050. And as greenhouse gases continue to pile up in the atmosphere, this rate of sea level rise is in fact accelerating. We spent today's programme looking at two very different cities, Venice and Jakarta, and the very complicated reasons why they're sinking and the different solutions that they're proceeding with. But let's broaden this picture. Where else is at risk when it comes to sea level rise? Looking at this as somebody who's recently done a lot of research and reporting on climate change and migration, one of the questions that I had there was, where are the flashpoints for climate change and migration? So cities can basically be defended, but those things cost a lot of money. And so there's going to be a trade-off between, is it easier, is it more economically efficient? to move people or to just allow people to move away and drift away from coastlines? Or is it more economically efficient to defend those coastlines and those urban centers? And so ultimately, what you're going to have is this situation where highly valuable, highly economically productive urban regions will be defended and other centers will not be defended. So the rich cities, places like New York, Hong Kong, etc., will be defended And the poor ones probably won't be. But surely there's going to be social and economic implications, even in the the richer places that end up being defended. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what you typically get is that poor neighbourhoods don't get defended and richer neighbourhoods or, say, financial centres do. So in 2018, there was this study led by two academics in Germany. And what they found was that there was just 13% of the global coastline where protecting would be financially smart under absolutely every warming scenario that they looked at. And most of those were wealthy stretches of the American East Coast, Europe, China, South Korea, Japan. And on the flip side, 65% of the global coastline was basically not financially worth protecting under any scenario. And interestingly, that included two-thirds of America's coastline, including large parts of Florida, the Gulf Coast, and parts of Southern California. I'd love to get your take on Jakarta. I mean, their solution is to just move the capital city to a completely new location. What do you think about solutions like that? I've been thinking quite a lot about this issue of climate migration. And I actually think we're kind of thinking of the issue in the wrong way. Often people think of migration as being this sort of sudden mass exodus of people away from coastlines, which is obviously catastrophic scenarios. The smarter way to look at it is migration as a form of adaptation. But there are certainly many regions around the world where governments are doing that kind of forward planning. It's not always done in the best way. Well, let's look into that a bit more. I mean, what are some of the ways that planned relocations end up going wrong? 
So one thing that's really, really important is actually involving the communities, the people, the families who are in fact being moved. I spoke to some researchers in Bangladesh and they described situations where communities in Bangladesh had been relocated away from flood zones and they'd been offered homes further inland and there was a whole sort of rehousing, restructuring project. And when they went back several years later to see what had happened to these moved communities, what they found was that the people who'd been given homes in different places had sold up and moved into the big cities, often into slums, because the thing that nobody had thought about incredibly was what would happen to their jobs. So it's not just a case of here's a new house, here's schools, hospitals, etc. But it's also here's an employment. And that might involve moving them to an area or allowing people to move to an area where there are employment opportunities within their current skill set. Or it might involve actually helping reskill communities. So it's incredibly complicated. You're talking about the full complexity of those lives, which includes jobs, schools, hospitals, infrastructure, social connectivity. It's not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Katrine, there's no discussion about climate change that doesn't involve politics. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on the kinds of international conversations and summits and other things that need to happen before any of these problems are solved. Yeah, so adaptation by its very nature is local. No two cities are going to have the exact same adaptation plan. So I'd say the first thing is, in fact, urban centres need to, and they are, many of them are, develop their own adaptation plan. And generally, that fits into a wider national adaptation plan. So you need to do things like look at what the projections for climate impacts are for your specific locality under different warming scenarios, and then create adaptation plans in consequence. And then you test those adaptation plans using models, etc. At an international level, I'd say there's a few things. One is keeping the emphasis on adaptation. There's this age-old concern that if people put too much focus and emphasis on adaptation, then less will be done to actually address climate change, the root causes of climate change and reduce emissions. That's a false dichotomy, particularly in a world that is already more than one degrees warmer than it was in pre-industrial times. So we are now in a world that is already adapted and that will need to adapt further. There's really no either or here. It is both. And then there's the financing piece of the puzzle. Poor countries need finance in order to adapt. Unfortunately, they have been promised through international fora, namely the UN, billions for years, and that money has not yet been mobilized. So those promises need to be met, and tragically, they need to be amped up. Okay, so where do we go from here? I mean, do you have confidence that those international agreements will actually happen? I take some comfort from the fact that the conversation on adaptation has mostly moved on from what I call the, the false dichotomy. Every dollar that goes to adaptation and every ton of CO2 that is kept out of the atmosphere is a dollar in the right direction and a ton in the right direction. Yes, there will be a need for more adaptation than there could have been, Yes, the poorest will take the brunt of that. But yes, governments, companies, cities and people need to continue pulling in that direction in order to minimize the impacts as much as possible so that 
the adaptation that's required can also be minimized. Katrine, thank you very much. Thank you, Alok. Always a pleasure. Back in the Italian city of Venice, if one thing seems certain, it's that the disruption, whether it's from floods or the adaptation measures, will have an impact on all the locals. We don't know how fast sea levels are going to rise. That's our correspondent, Ben Sutherland, again. We've got some estimates that say it could be 110 centimetres higher by the end of the century. Almost no estimates say less than 40 centimetres higher than it is today. But, but So you've got quite a range in there. Another factor driving urgency with this is that resistance from environmentalists was likely to be ferocious. Hermes Rady, director of the Mose system, told me that resistance from environmentalists for that system probably added about 20% to the entire cost of the system due to all the delays that they, they managed to insert. Conversations in Venice sometimes end up or degenerate into people talking about traumatic scenarios. One scenario is that uh, the city might have to eventually lift the walkways up to what is now the second floor, abandon the ground floor, cut new doors into the buildings and uh, kind of save as much of the city as you can that way. That's another kind of prospect that uh, people are unhappy to contemplate, let's say. I spoke with Dario Camufo, another expert with Italy's National Research Council. He studies environmental issues and their connection with cultural heritage. And uh, he evoked another kind of traumatic, conceivable outcome for the distant future in which you would have rich people in China or California purchasing treasured buildings in Venice, having them dismantled, put on shifts, and reassembled elsewhere. I think Venice will manage to eventually adapt. Probably what will need to happen, and this is uh, the opinion of Hermes Reddy, of the Mose project. He said eventually in the distant future we will probably need to cut the entire lagoon off from the Adriatic Sea, build a high enough dike, and then install an elaborate system of pumps and filters in order to keep the water distant. That would be really a humiliation for a proud city with this incredible maritime heritage. But eventually you're going to have to make the, the trade-off of what's better, lose Venice or truncate it from the sea. And, and so that's quite likely what will happen. But Venice is a unique case in that it's a national treasure 
And because of that, large amounts of money have been provided by the national government. Other cities and areas that are less high profile are not going to have as much money available. So while Venice may be able to pull this off one way or another, that is unlikely to be the case for many other beautiful areas that are nonetheless not quite as iconic as Venice. Thanks to The Economist's Ben Sutherland and Elise Jean-Baptiste, and all of the people they spoke to in Venice and Jakarta. Also thanks to Katrine Brahek, and to you for listening. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producers are Marguerite Howell and Jason Palmer. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.